2: Welcome to the fourth episode of I Am Steve R. It has been uh, a few weeks since I have been with you all. It has been exceptionally busy. I had, uh, you know, the Thanksgiving break and then the Christmas break and then uh, covering college football and all that stuff. And so it's been, um, it's been busy. You know, we had the book tour and that sort of stuff. And for those of you that don't know me from uh, anything other than this, you know, uh, you know, you got to get out and go sell books. And I've uh, had some people in my family that have had COVID. And for all of you that are dealing with all of that, uh, my heart goes out to each of you, fortunately. Uh, everybody in my family recovered very quickly. I have not had it yet that I know of. If I have, I've been asymptomatic. But, um, but nevertheless, it is something that we're all dealing with. But uh, since I've been with you all, too, I have uh, gone to Hattiesburg, Mississippi, which was the birthplace of my recovery. The birthplace of my stand and first steps towards a new life, and I picked up my 29-year chip when I was down there. It is always so emotional for me, no matter the circumstances, to go back to Hattiesburg, because as I make that turn and uh, kind of on Highway 49 and kind of make my way towards, you know, some familiar haunts, it um, it is very, very, very emotional for me. I can feel the healing power of that uh, of that place because I know it's where I put my feet in the ground and began to uh, move forward. I heard someone say years ago in a meeting that uh, I was so far away from where I needed to be that any step I took was in the right direction. And the first step, home, toward home was taken in Hattiesburg Mississippi and that place will always be special to me and so I want to talk a little bit about you know maybe the first steps not the first step of the 12 steps but kind of the first steps for me towards a new realization that I had many things in my life that I had to repair. I had many character defects that I needed to kind of uh, address. I had many people around me that uh, did not have my best interest at heart but at the end of the day I was responsible for the life that I was living, living, the life that I had chosen, and so I want to take you through a few things because uh, I think it's important to fully appreciate, you know, the uh, the autopsy process when it comes to taking a full inventory of our lives. You know, so there were so many people that said, you know, what it's a phase. You know, yeah, Steve's got a drinking problem and maybe a bit of a drug problem, even though most people didn't fully appreciate that aspect of it. And they said, "Well, you know, it's just a phase, you know he's just kind of a wild and rebellious teen, and he'll grow out of this." Well, I never grew out of it, and I guess in many ways, I'm still growing out of it. I have learned a new way to live, but um, it wasn't just as simple as having a drinking problem. I wish it were that simple. Because then when you remove alcohol from the equation, then everything else gets better. If it was just a phase, then chances are I wouldn't have had long-term consequences from those decisions that I made. So it wasn't just a drinking problem at all. I've shared with you guys before that uh, if you have somebody that uh, you believe has a drinking problem and all you do is dry them out, if all you do is get them to stop drinking, then they will make themselves and everyone around them miserable. It's not nearly as simple as stopping drinking or stopping drugging or whatever your, your issue may be. It's never just as simple as that. And I think the layperson, you know, the earth people kind of see it that way. You know, if we could just get him to stop drinking, everything will be okay. When you remove the medicine or the crutch, you still are left with the problem, the primary problem or problems. In my case, there were multiple problems. I had some issues with the law. I used to think I had a police problem. I thought maybe they're picking on me you know excusing the fact that i was breaking the law excusing the fact that i was uh, a person that uh, you know had some some issues with compliance <clears throat> that i was a rebellious person and also i was a person that didn't think the rules applied to me i thought i was somehow special or different and that i needed to be treated differently there were many times that uh, you know i had people in law enforcement uh, that might have targeted me because of past behaviors not just because they were trying to hit a quota, not just because they were trying to mess with me. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that we don't have a policing problem in America. We do. But my situation wasn't as simple as that. I wasn't just, uh, you know, a person that was in the middle of, uh, you know, some uh, police conspiracy to uh, to cause Steve Robertson grief. You know that that wasn't uh, that wasn't the case. That might be the case for you. wasn't the case for me. I didn't have a policing problem. I didn't have a police problem. I didn't. It was a symptom of a bigger problem. But I wasn't just some target of the police. I wasn't public enemy number one. The bottom line is that I had exhibited some behaviors that put me on the attention, uh, you know, radar of law enforcement. I kind of put myself into that situation. Contrary to popular belief, most innocent, law-abiding people don't have a lot of problems with the police. I had problems with police, but I had a much bigger issue than a police problem. There are a lot of relationships that I had that were of the negative variety. Many of those, chosen by me, due to a lack of self-esteem, got involved in relationships that uh, you know were kind of beneath my my station and I don't mean that in arrogance what I mean by you know it's like you kind of excuse your own behavior by saying you know what I'm not as bad as this person but I had some romantic relationships that were extremely unhealthy they weren't just unhealthy because I was unhealthy the people that I chose to have relationships with were unhealthy so we were kind of similarly situated you know sick people have a tendency to uh you know to kind of congregate together it's funny how that works. I wrote one of my first books that uh, the fleas always find the dog. That's a euphemism for all of us. You know, if you are involved in negative behavior, you tend to gravitate towards other people that are involved in negative behavior. I didn't want to be around people that were doing things differently than me. Some of it because I was convicted. Sometimes I'd be around those people and I would say, you know, I know that I need to lead a better life than I'm le- leading. And uh, being around these folks kind of reminded me of that. And so it was just so much simpler to be around people that, uh, you know, were kind of facing the same struggles that I was. But I certainly had some relationship problems. I-, I was the kind of person, to be honest with you, back when when I was using and drinking, I-, I didn't need to be in relationships because all I was doing is making my life and their life worse. But it wasn't just me. You know, there were consequences that I experienced because of some of the people that I chose to have relationships with. Many of them were already entangled in other relationships. I, I, the boundaries just didn't matter to me. I just, it, did, it just simply didn't matter to me. You know, if they were involved with somebody else, or in some situations even more so than that, it just it didn't matter to me. Because it was all about what could make me feel better about me. And so I shared that with you because it is so easy to say, well, you know, we had a bad relationship and so then when that you know kind of resolved itself of its own volition we begin to drink or use and and at the end of the day it's an excuse it's an excuse and sometimes we even self-sabotage those relationships because it's so much simpler and easier and if i don't have this relationship in my life then i don't have anybody to hold me accountable If I can go around and convince everybody how heartbroken I am that I've got an excuse to drink, nobody can be judgmental of me because I am drinking or using. Because look at all the way that he's hurting. Look at the heartbreak that he's experiencing. Go ahead and let him have a drink. Don't say anything. He's dealing with a lot. And so I knew that because people that love you will make excuses for you. Because many people don't want to come to grips with the fact that you have serious issues. It's just easier to keep the peace. Than to confront the real truth. There were many times that I people convinced themselves, including myself, you know, that I had uh, you know kind of a, you know, I guess it's what what you'd call you know I had some friend issues. People would say, well, you know, he kind of ran with the wrong crowd. He had a problem with his acquaintances. That was the problem. The problem was is that Steve ran with the wrong people who exhibited bad behavior, and he was a byproduct of the company that he kept. There may be some truth to that, but I would submit to you today that in every circle of friends that I had, I was the negative influence. Sure, there were some people that you know had a more colorful drug resume than me. There were some people that perhaps that were a little more, outlandish than me, or people that were a little more bold in their negative behavior. But I was kind of the catalyst within those groups. You know, I was always a guy that wanted to do more. Life wasn't enough for me. Just living life wasn't enough. And so I wanted to have more fun, wanted to have more drama, wanted to have more relationships. It was ne- there was never enough. People couldn't love me enough. People couldn't spend enough time with me. But I had friends. And you call them friends because, uh, you know, they're, they're there when you need them, right? And the only time I really needed them was when I was running short of drugs or I needed somebody to party with or somebody to drive so I could get absolutely blister drunk. These were not healthy relationships or friendships. And you choose those friends because of the fact that, um, you know, they're kind of co-conspirators in your demise, because they won't stand in the way of what we want to do for ourselves or to ourselves, more to the point. There are a lot of times that I felt like, you know, that perhaps, uh, you know, I had some emotional problems. You look at all that and you say, well, you know, you're so young and talented and full of potential. Why would you want to end your life? And that's really what it is. I, th- I think even though I had a failed suicide attempt, I think many many of the behaviors that I exhibited... And the craziness and all the things that went along with that were because I just wanted to to, uh, to end my life shorter than planned. I was in so much pain, so much misery, I thought, well, this will shorten my life and then in turn shorten my misery. And then everybody will get it. Everybody will say, oh, look what we did. Look what we did to Steve. It's not that simple, though. Because I didn't have... At its core, while I had some you know, some issues, it wasn't a police problem, wasn't a relationship problem, wasn't a friendship problem, wasn't just a drinking problem. It was a me problem. And it's easy and early in recovery to blame everybody else. It's like, look at what they've done to me. Look at what she did to me. Look at how she hurt me. Look at how unfaithful she was to me. Look at how she or he or whoever abandoned me when I truly needed them. Oh, woe is me. Oh, woe is me. Because that's what it's about. That's what every bit of it is about. It's about me. There are a lot of people that say, well, you know, it's you know, the disease of alcoholism, the disease of substance abuse, whatever. And there are a lot of people that have conflicting opinions about that. At the end of the day, their opinions don't mean anything to me. It's about what I believe what I know to be true for me and myself. But at the end of the day, it is a disease of self. Because I would do whatever I had to do to feel better about me. And so once I got into the rooms and once I got into treatment, and uh, I highly encourage going to treatment if you or your insurance company can afford it. And while you're there, I encourage you to address every issue you have. Be totally and brutally honest. You're never going to see many of these people ever again in your life. It's so difficult for us to admit weakness, right? It's so difficult. But there is strength in that admission. There is strength in admitting that, you know what, I'm weak here. Weak people don't talk about the things that cause them problems. I was once a weak person, and I look back, even though 29 years later now, I look back on those times in in, in Pine Grove, and I begin to think, I wish I would have addressed this. You know, when you look back in, through the lens of adulthood, you think, you know, what these are things that kind of ate my lunch, and that I had to deal with them on my own without the supervision of counselors. Much later, thankfully, due to a great sponsor and working the steps in the program and and being in in AA meetings and NA meetings. I was able to address some of those things. The fourth and fifth step gave me an opportunity to identify many of those things that gave me real problems in life. They gave me the inventory of what was wrong with me, not what was wrong with everybody else. Because it's so convenient in the beginning to blame everybody else because we want to be the victim. At least I did. I wanted to be the victim. Look at what you have done to me. And then one day I kind of looked in the mirror and I said, Look at what I've done to myself. I made these decisions. I put myself in these situations. I knew better. I have known the right thing to do in life.
1: As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.
2: At every turn. I just didn't do it. That's as honest an admission as I can make to you today. Nobody ever tricked me into getting drunk. Nobody ever tricked me into getting high. I made a conscious decision to do those things and then eventually i didn't have a choice until something dramatic happened in my life that kind of turned all those fingers that i had been pointing outward inward now all of a sudden i had to say listen well this is where we are i remember spending my birthday incarcerated and i remember then in the days that led up to that i began thinking man how miserable is this going to be being locked up for my birthday I spent the Christmas holidays in 1991 in Pine Grove. I was with other addicts and alcoholics in a treatment facility on Christmas. That was a bit of a sobering reality too. So you miss Christmas in treatment, then you miss your birthday uh, in the RID program at Parchman And so all of those things were, you know, because of the fact that, uh, you know, holidays are kind of what adds spice to the year, right? I mean, this is when people give you gifts. Well, nobody could give me gifts, right? And to be honest with you, you know, the only gift I really needed was a chance. But I remember being in the RID program that day, and there were some of my friends that I had made, uh, you know, other guys that were in jail, you know. It was my birthday, and uh, we had uh, some instant Folgers coffee, and uh, one of the guys from Ackerman... Had gotten his care package and uh, he gave me and all my friends a Snickers bar. That was my birthday. That's how I spent the birthday. But you know what? I was sober. I was clean. I had a sober mind. I appreciated the kindness of this relative stranger. that wanted to make that day special for me. And sometimes you find a bit of solitude among strangers and the outcasts. And I've always kind of felt that way. I've always felt more at home with those people. I've always felt more at home with people that had a few warts. Because I'm far from perfect. And those people that portray this perfect image, you know, I, I guess I bought it. I begin to think, well, you know, maybe they're just better than me. And then when we get down to the end of it all and we get a little bit older, a little more mature, we realize that all of us have issues and we all have a struggle. And I think kind of waking up to the realization that we all have issues kind of makes it easier to deal with being me. Because now all of a sudden, I didn't feel so different. I didn't feel so weird. I didn't feel so crazy. I didn't feel so insane anymore. Because in the beginning, those little voices in your head, you know, the disease begins to tell you that, oh, you know, you're beyond hope. You're one of those, you're a reprobate. You're one of those people that simply can't be saved you're not worth saving god has abandoned you then you begin to question your own mortality and you question your religious values and that bit stuff and i began to search through all those things and one of the few things that i have found that if it is to be it is up to me there is no search party being formed to come save me or you doesn't work that way And the truth of the matter is, is if they did find us and they did bring us back, then we wouldn't have any personal responsibility in making the choice to be better people. We wouldn't have a choice in the matter. We wouldn't have any skin in the game, shall we say, towards making a conscious decision to change the course of our lives. And so there I was in the wilderness, emotionally, spiritually, and I began to walk home. And I got home. And I rallied. And I began to be around people who truly loved me. People that didn't buy me drugs. People that didn't, uh, you know, feel the need to, uh, to aid in my demise. People that, uh, that were kind of shocked by some of my behaviors. And there's some shame in all that too. And there are some things, you know, you don't want to talk about especially with those people, because you're ashamed. I've been there. I get it. That's why you have a sponsor, right? That's why you have accountability partners. There are some things early in recovery that you just can't bring yourself to tell your mom, your sisters, your brother, your dad, your employer, your spouse, your significant others. There are just some things you're not ready to talk about. But at some point, you have to talk about them. And maybe it's when you gather some strength. Maybe it's when you get your feet back under you. But at some point, working a program of rigorous honesty is the only chance we have. Now, of course, oh, you can take all these drugs and everything else. That uh, What is it, an abuse? You take that and it makes you violently ill if you drink alcohol. But that's not really sobriety. That's just not drinking. In order for me to be better, in order for me to feel better about me in a very healthy way, I have to address the issues that I have. Not that I'm a firm believer in issues, but I know that I have some character defects that have to be addressed. In order for me to be anything of value to myself or anybody else, I had to address what was wrong with me. And in the beginning, I had no clue. I thought I was just crazy. I mean, honestly, that's what I felt like. I said, you know what, maybe I'm just nuts. And then I remember, you know, my grandmother insisting that I go get treatment for my alcoholism. And it was a part of me that says, okay, well, at least I, I can put that label on it. Maybe I'm not crazy. I'll just tell everybody I'm a drunk. And once I got into the rooms and I began to listen, I began to listen, not just to the counselors and not just to the old timers, but other people that were like me. And I began to kind of realize, you know what, I'm just like these people. They might have done some things that I haven't done yet, But their line of thinking is similar to mine. And so I began to kind of realize, you know what, I don't know what works for everybody else, but I'm going to kind of hang out here with these guys because, uh, you know, some of these folks that have been around for 30, 40 years, they seem to be a lot happier than me. And then I saw those people pick up their one-year chip and that sort of stuff, and I began to see how healthy they looked and how happy they looked. And they they had a, you know, a brightness in their eyes that I hadn't seen in a mirror in years. And so I began to think, I want to be like them. You know, in the beginning when I first got there, I convinced myself that I wasn't like them. And then in time I figured out, you know what? They have something that I want. So I must do what they did to get it. Nobody's just going to gift it to me. I got to actually do the work. And so I got a sponsor. And I worked the steps. And then... I outgrew one sponsor, and I got another sponsor. And I learned something great from all of them. But every one of them turned things around and made me, instead of me going and talking about, oh, well, this guy was in a meeting, and he said this, and he said that, and this person did it. Well, okay, well, what about you? I remember when I first moved uh, to Starkville, you know, I went to some A meetings up here, and I was unimpressed. And uh, one of my best friends in the program, I reached out to him, I goes, oh, yeah, it's not real good. And he goes, well, what are you doing to change it? What are you doing to make it better? And there were so many people early in my recovery who were there for me without knowing they were there for me. They didn't understand the impact they had on my early recovery. They didn't understand what role models they came became for me because I needed something to shoot for. I needed someone to pattern positive behavior for me. And there are other people that would say, well, you know, you had this, you had this, and this is going on, and and all that's true. All of that is true. But I was a little different. I was a little different. And it's okay to be different. It's one of those things that I kind of pride myself in now, that I'm I'm not just the run of the mill. I'm not just, uh, you know, facing the crowd. Because as I began to get sober i began to realize that i could have an ordinary life and uh you know i'm a real big music guy and uh when early in recovery when i really had one of those spiritual awakenings when i felt like you know what i can do this i can the song ordinary world by duran duran was out and uh, i was a big duran duran fan in their heyday and the wedding album came out and um ordinary world was on there and every time i heard that song i began to cry because that's what I wanted. I just wanted to be regular. I I didn't want to be the guy with all the trouble. I didn't want the police always out there. I didn't want people always saying, can you believe what this guy did? I didn't want those stories anymore. I didn't want that stuff attached to my name anymore. I just wanted to be regular. I just wanted to find an ordinary world. That's it. I just wanted to get up every day, get a shower, go to work, put in a hard day's work, come home, go to bed, pay the bills, make sure the rent's paid, Don't cause anybody any problems. That's all I wanted. I just wanted to have an ordinary life. And then in time, as I began to heal, I realized, you know, I don't have to have just an ordinary life. I can have an extraordinary life. Me. The guy that used to get run down by the cops. The guy that, I mean, I had been sober a couple years, and I'd have sometimes when I'd hit town, there'd be one or two police officers that would fall in behind me. And I hadn't had anything to drink, hadn't had anything to drug, hadn't, wasn't speeding, wasn't breaking the law. But I had earned that reputation. And some would say, well, they're just intimidated. You, you know, but here's the thing. I would have loved for them to have pulled me over and found that I was doing fine. And, you know, in time, you know what? They left me alone. Because I didn't do anything to stay on their radar. I didn't do things to cause them trouble. I didn't do things to make them fear for their own safety. I just lived an ordinary life. I was an ordinary Joe. Getting up and going to work every day and, you know, just hoping I could come home at night and, uh, you know, have something to come home to. But in time, I began to love me. Before I could love me, I had to like me. Because I spent so many years just kind of self-loathing myself. You know it, you know how it is. You tell yourself you're not good enough, you're not worth it, or this is what I deserve, and, and you start buying into that crap. You start believing the stuff those little voices in your head tell you. You start thinking, well, maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe I'm not worthy of this. Maybe I don't deserve a better life. But I can tell you that in time, those little voices go away if you stop listening to them. And that's what happened for me. I started looking around the rooms and I saw the promises coming true for other people in their lives. And I said, you know, look at these people here. Look how, look how much healthier they are than me. I want to stick with the winners. That's what they always tell you. Stick with the winners. And sadly, there's a lot more losers and winners in, in when it comes to recovery long term. I don't mean that as an indictment of their character. I'm just saying that most people don't make it. And so I saw people that had what I won. And I took the steps to get it. And then in time I realized that, you know what, I could do more than just work to pay bills. I can do things in my life that are extraordinary. I can do things that other people can't do. One of the things about us, you know, alcoholics and addicts is we, a lot of us have a creative gene. A lot of us have a work ethic gene. And so I'm grateful to have those because now I use them for good I was always so obsessive I was always so competitive when it came to the negative aspects of my life I wanted to be the sickest darkest person that you knew but over time things changed for me I didn't want to be known as the sickest I didn't want to be known as the guy that would do anything I wanted to be the guy that was capable of doing anything and doing it for the right reasons And my hope is you will find that, too, because it's not necessarily a phase. It is not a drinking problem. It's not a drug problem. It is a me and you problem. And that's what I found in over 29 years of recovery. I have found that if I do what is best for me, and if I do what I know to be correct, and if I focus on my part and my responsibility in all of these things, the good things happen they always say you, you get out what you you get back what you put out well if i invest in myself if i invest in being the healthiest most well-adjusted person i can possibly be if that means getting and read my daily reflections every day and going to meeting every day if that's the daily premium then that's what i got to do but every one of us will will reap benefits from the fact that if we take full accountability for ourselves and responsibility for our own actions and say you know what I am going to stop the negative behavior, and I'm going to invest in getting better. Because we're not, you know, bad people pretending to be good. We're sick people trying to get well. And once you fully commit to your recovery, you will get well, and you will have a life unlike anything you ever imagined. I know because I have seen these promises come true in my life, and I'm just getting started. That's one of the things people say, you know, well, Steve, you've accomplished this. You've done that. You know, it's interesting. I've, got, I've written three books and working on my fourth one now. And I've got the book covers of all of them you know, printed and framed on the wall, big poster type stuff, like movie poster stuff. And uh, when they got ready to hang them, I said, hey, do you want to spread them out? I said, no, put them all there to the right side. All, all up to themselves. Leave the rest of the wall open. And somebody kind of questioned that and said, well, you know, wouldn't it look better? I was like, no, because when I come in each morning, when I walk into this room, I don't want to see the book covers. I want to see the empty wall because I want to focus more on my opportunities than my accomplishments. I hope that all of you are well today. I want you to know that I love you and I'm here for you. And no matter what the world tells you, no matter what the disease tells you or anybody else tells you, you're never alone because I am right here with you.